The views and opinions expressed on Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or NC State student media. Hello everyone, this is Brian Jurado, the Public Affairs Director at WKNC and host of Eye on the Triangle. In continuation of our WKNC Eye on the Triangle election episode, we've added some podcast episodes to fully post these interviews. The candidates being interviewed are Joshua Bradley, James Bledsoe, Jonathan Melton, and Anne Franklin. These candidates are running for Raleigh City Council. For this podcast segment, the candidates will be discussing housing, zoning, CACs, and food desert. The interview is being conducted by WKNC content creator Owen Martin. In the current 2019 to 2022 City Council term, there have been a lot of controversies surrounding the dissolution of the Citizen Advisory Councils as well as how the current council has handled zoning. And this is a response to those questions, as well as how they are going to handle affordable housing. What does housing justice look like in Raleigh? Housing justice, uh, there's a lot of points uh, that looks in that. I think that one thing that we need to do uh, for renters is to do what we can to uh, organize tenant unions. Um, what is a tenant union? A tenant union is a group of uh, uh, is a group of um, residents, and it's I've seen it either organized by a city or by actually apartment buildings or groups. Sort of like a co-op, like a HOA that's not um, fascist. Yeah, it's 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 basically the idea is that you're stronger together. So if if you're if you're apartment complex or or building or, or however you organize it has issues if i have an issue and call my landlord maybe they'll get to it maybe they won't it depends on it i've lived in some i've rented from some some lords in raleigh that didn't care mm-hmm. um but if everybody comes together and, and pushes the issue chances are you get stuff done and that when you talk about collective action um you know, a rent strike with one person is an eviction, right? Mm-hmm. But if the entire building does it, then that actually affects, you know, mm-hmm. the you know the money of the landlord. So that I think there are people uh, that are heard. Now, if you're in Section Eight housing or HUD housing, uh, actually HUD has. Uh, something set up called a residence council and in theory residence councils are actually should be getting government money to help organize uh and in theory they shouldn't be listened to by the housing authority uh they just have to be organized so i think uh for people that are on section 8 housing or in uh you know in social housing should uh if they're they're not already organized and, and and because a lot of We've lost a lot of that kind of housing in Raleigh in the last several years, and mm-hmm. uh, we need to do what we can to push it out because everybody's important. Ever like housing is a human right, mm-hmm. so we need to treat it as a human right. Um, another thing is, I mean, there are there, the city holds a lot of property, and what they've traditionally been doing is they've been offering it at a discount for big developers to get some kind of guarantee of like eighty have. Five percent of housing units, um, you know, for people that are uh, make eighty uh, percent of AMI affordable for people at eighty mm-hmm. percent of AMI. Do you understand? Yeah. Area median income and um, and that kind of stuff, which really doesn't help that much because right now we have a surplus of homes uh, for uh, housing above for people that make above eighty percent of the uh, area median income. Um, so. 
rather than do that, why don't we just build it? Why don't we just hire a contractor? Why don't we just, you know, I mean, we have the land. I mean, people complain that we have a lot of empty parking lots that we want to de-emphasize, but why don't we, and they've said we need to build housing there, but why, why do we have to give it Wait to for a developer to do, to do it, yeah. Uh, I mean, there are housing nonprofits to work with too. I mean, there there's lots of, Lots of ways. There are people that know how to get it done if you put it in the right hands. Right. And and you've got to listen to the people that are on the ground, too. Like, there are people that have been working on housing in Raleigh forever. Like, like the Wake County Housing Justice Coalition have been on this for a while. Uh, and I've got... There's the property at Moore Square. Yeah, well, yeah. And you've got people like Food Not Bombs and, and Meals for the Masses that, that actually use part of Moore Square to do that. And if the city were to sell that to even 80% AMI or higher, it would just push out the... It would make it more difficult to, to distribute mm-hmm. food and offer uh, services. Uh, and yeah, shout out to Meals for the Masses and uh, Food Not Bombs Raleigh. They're good people and do good work. Uh, and that when it comes to Moore Square, the other thing that you want to realize is that was donated to the city for the poor of the city. And uh, basically, uh, years ago, they they took it, they closed it for two years and kept everybody out, cut out most of the trees, sodded it, and put a hamburger place there. Um, so, and at the cost of about $12 million of city funds, imagine how much housing you could Yeah, like housing, that. like isn't that expensive to build like you can build a lot of buildings like at cost right yeah it's just it's taking it out i mean they're concerned about the money the the, you know about the for-profit you could housing stop paying developers to do it yeah and when it comes down to things that that are important for to sustain life shouldn't be done for profit healthcare shouldn't be done for profit housing shouldn't be done for profit um you know, I, to some degree, food shouldn't be done for profit. I mean, because, you know, we're, we're a species that is, is actually contrary to popular belief. The only reason that we survived as a species is because we work together, right? We would have died out a couple of times back in the day if uh, we didn't work together. And it seems like to me, and it could just be me, that people in my parents' generation and afterward, and to some degree my generation, even though Gen X was really small, um, started focusing on the individual. I mean, it goes back to Reaganomics and Thatcherism. That Thatcher said that, you know, we're not a com- community, we're a bunch of individuals. And that doesn't make sense because, like, if we're going to survive, if we're going to I mean, because this this country, this planet has a lot of issues that we're going to need to work together on, right? Yeah. That's why I'm not the anarchist I was when, you know, 20 years ago, right? Because we don't have that much time. I think left anarchism is beautiful. It is slow as molasses, though. We've got like 40 years, y'all. Yeah. I yeah. Society like that. Mm-hmm. Let's transition more to property taxes and such. Um, I know we had talked about um, kind of putting a freeze on some things. Now, there's a lot of limitations placed on it by the General Assembly, but how would you combat kind of the artificial shortage created by? Um, sort of short-term rentals like Airbnb and stuff, and then unoccupied second or or nth homes. And um, what are you going to do to protect citizens um, whose property taxes are going, are skyrocketing because their homes are being speculated upon and gentrified around? 
Wow, that's a, that's a big one too. Uh, <laughs> there's, uh, I mean, what we should do is we should find the funding to to help cover people whose uh, taxes are gone up. If we if if the city is not allowed to, if the general assembly doesn't let us give tax forgiveness or grandfather in old tax rates for people in gentrified communities, I think we should come with the money to cover to cover that and and what, what however we need to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. if it's not directly to the tax bill, mm-hmm. we'll give you this to cover X utility to bring you up to Mm -hmm. the point to where you could do it. Uh, You know, I think that, um, you know, we need to really work. We we need to really get a general assembly that'll give us a little leeway because there's lots of things that you could do when it comes to tax. If we had a, ideally, and before 2019, and we'd really talking about a progressive property tax where it would be a small tax decrease for people under 250,000 value and then Mm -hmm. stay the same for the next hundred thousand and then for every hundred thousand dollars of valuation you would get like 10 cents per a hundred thousand or a thousand dollars of valuation which we can't do anymore because of the general assembly but that would at one time slow down the speculation and it would slow down building mcmansions in the places uh, that used to be affordable Mm-hmm. And then you could put that money into actually building more affordable housing. Um, so that's a discussion that needs to be had and should be had with the uh, city council. But as far as Airbnb and short-term rentals, I'm of the opinion that we should we should ban them, uh, except with the exception of maybe in the house that you live in. In your primary residence, you can rent a like room. an extra room or something. Well, yeah, you can do a, an Airbnb or even the like accessory buildings. Well, see, I, I, I don't agree with uh, ADUs. Okay. Like, the, the problem with ADUs is they passed a, the ADUs thinking it's going to save affordability, and then they deregulated Airbnbs at the same time. So what's going to happen is people are going to be building ADUs, and they're going to use them for Airbnb, Airbnbs, which don't do anything to help. Local the supply, people. yeah. It doesn't do anything to housing supply. There's nothing that has been recently that has, effect, that had, has really had a positive impact on the supply of uh, low-cost housing. Um, how do you – what is your position on the properties adjacent to Moore Square and how to develop them into affordable housing? The city-owned properties? Mm-hmm. So there are, I think, two big city-owned properties near Moore Square. One is right behind City Market. There's a surface parking lot right now. And then there is a bunch of gravel, maybe some surface parking, and some grass uh, on the other side of Moore Square, kind of like behind where that Salvation Army is right there. And the plan for that the city has proposed is the bigger piece by the Salvation Army. Put a request for proposals out to build affordable housing there, give us your best shot. Mixed use, so folks don't have to have a car to get what they need. The surface parking lot behind City Market, I believe the plan is for that to be sold to the highest bidder and then the proceeds, so the money we can receive from it, invested into the affordable housing fund. I agree with that approach. Um, We also have a bunch of city-owned lots scattered around the city, specifically downtown, not big pieces like that, but Mm -hmm. maybe a lot or two in an existing neighborhood. It has sat vacant for decades. And one thing that I've pushed for since I've been on council is like empty dirt is not helping anybody. Why is the city owning vacant land when we could be housing people on that land? So one thing we're doing with those properties is for most of them, 
um, upzoning them so you can build more units there. And then the city's going to retain ownership but do long-term land leases with some nonprofit partners or private partners to build deeply affordable housing, like aiming at like 30%, 40% AMI, thinking that if the city owns the land and does a long-term land lease, we can control the affordability. Because what normally happens is mm-hmm. it's affordable for the first couple of years and then it flips. Mm-hmm. Um, why can't the city of Raleigh just build them themselves or get a contractor but then retain ownership so the the lots we are doing a a land lease Mm -hmm, yeah Um, but the city doesn't actually build housing um that's where the public private partnerships come in and it actually extends the city dollars significantly i was looking at this the other day and i don't have it in front of me but the amount of money we have invested in public private partnerships the return on that is like five or six fold. So we are able to work with groups like CASA, Habitat, DHIC, the Raleigh Area Land Trust on either conveying land below fair market value, offering low income housing tax credits or some other subsidy so that we can produce more affordable units than we would have been able to do if the city was trying to build themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just I don't I'm not I don't know a lot about it and I don't like growing up I'd always heard about projects and stuff like housing mm-hmm. housing projects and you know just kind of it yeah just why can't the the city just build apartment blocks and stuff like that right so typically like I said we work with mm-hmm. someone in the private sector it's usually a nonprofit um, for example Casa is a nonprofit multifamily provider mostly multifamily they came to us a couple weeks ago they wanted to buy a naturally occurring affordable apartment complex that was at risk of being bought by a developer to turn, probably mm-hmm. get redeveloped into something that's not affordable. So we um, conveyed to them $2 million as I think a low interest or forgivable loan. So they're going to buy it and then they're going to keep it as an affordable rental and mm-hmm. Casa is going to maintain it. Um, we How had another guys, one with, um, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, sorry, I keep hitting you up. How do you guys um, maintain or how do you all keep CASA or other organizations like that accountable to make sure that um, is there some sort of rent control put in place or how does how is that process created as that process facilitated where um, affordable it's made sure that it's affordable housing still ongoing. Well, one thing with CASA is that's all they do. So these Mm -hmm. are groups that only do those types of um, developments. The the enforcement mechanism is actually something I don't know because that would be a staff issue. That'd be housing and neighborhoods Mm -hmm. or, you know, the planning and development department. What we approve is sort of the overarching policy. Yes, we want to convey $2 million to CASA to keep this affordable. I do know with um, certain things like the um, property at Moore Square, the one that we want affordable housing built on, that would be a condition on, on it. And so it would be enforceable the same way I think probably all of our other zoning conditions are. Like if you have a zoning condition attached to your property, then you have to follow it. Okay. Um... Um, what are some of the developers that city council has been working with or how have you guys been working with developers to make sure that um, these things happen? So anytime 
the only way we have really any influence is if someone comes for a rezoning. Okay. Um, I don't think sometimes people understand that, that if you can build by right, meaning you can already build there, um, then we, outside of the standard staff reviewing policy and administrative site reviews, there's really no negotiating discretion. And so mm -hmm. here's an example, um, the seaboard station um, project. Logan's owned seaboard station for a long time. They never put any historic protection or designation on that train station building. Um, they sold it to a developer. The mm -hmm. developer on the day that that sale closed could have knocked that train station down and built seven stories by right. They did not have to ask permission. They filed a rezoning asking for 20 story buildings. So because they were asking to increase the entitlement, that was the mm -hmm. opportunity we had to work with them to negotiate preservation conditions for the seaboard station building. And sometimes I think that's not clear to folks because you know we had people show up to our meeting with signs that said, deny the rezoning, save seaboard station. And I said, if you want to save seaboard station and I want to save seaboard station, the only chance we have is this rezoning request. Because if we deny it, it's going to get knocked down and seven stories are going to get built. Mm -hmm. And what we were able to do with the community and the developer was to negotiate preservation conditions. Um, how do you feel about lot minimums? So when we talk about minimum lot sizes, setbacks, all of that sort of gets wrapped up. If Let's take it a step back. I try to provide examples. Mm -hmm. If you go into Oakwood, uh, if you go into Forest Park, used to be Cameron Park right here by NC State, you will see neighborhoods that were built before these zoning rules. Mm -hmm. So you will see missing middle housing, so apartments mixed in with single family homes, duplexes mixed in with single family homes, townhomes mixed in with single family homes, homes close to the street, homes close to each other. All of that was built before exclusionary zoning laws and before laws like minimum lot size, setbacks, all of those things. And I think some of it, some of it, a little bit, was put into place for some aesthetic and safety reasons, but a lot of it was to exclude people from moving into areas. Mm -hmm. And so we have done a lot of zoning reform to reduce minimum lot sizes, um, to make it easier to build housing, different types of housing in places all over the city. Because quite frankly, for a really long time, so much of the city, and I'll say it, it was older, wealthy white neighborhoods, were closed off or protested new development, and all that pressure was funneling into areas like Southeast Raleigh and other areas that were traditionally underinvested. Um, and the only way we're gonna grow equitably is if we open up the whole city for mm -hmm. growth and development. No one's gonna drop an apartment tower in your backyard, but if someone wants to build a townhouse instead of a single family home, I think that should be allowed. If someone wants to build a duplex instead of a single family home, I think that should be allowed. And the great thing is, is sometimes folks needs ex need examples so it, the idea seems less scary. You can drive around or walk around Raleigh and see tons of examples of that already. And they exist in our oldest, most beloved neighborhoods because they predate zoning rules. Um, how um, Denver does a really good job of... Um, to put it kind of crudely, protecting their um, citizens against gentrification, kind of educating them about um, what it means when developers are coming in around them and their property taxes are being increased and they're getting mm -hmm. officers from, I mean, offers from developers. Um, what, a, what would a program like that in Raleigh look like? I think that sort of rolls into our new office of community engagement. I think quite frankly, that was a little bit of a void before. And one thing that I had talked about at our last council meeting is how we can better connect housing and neighborhoods and the neighborhood registry program with our community engagement efforts. 
I also think that there's more we can do from a funding standpoint to help folks stay in their homes because a lot of people are moving to Raleigh. We know that. We have to provide access to housing for the new folks. But we have people who have housing now who are at risk of losing it. Mm -hmm. And once they become displaced, now they need housing and the cycle perpetuates. And so one thing that our affordable housing bond that passed in 2020 does is it increases funding for owner-occupied rehabilitation assistance. And a lot of times folks feel like they have to sell their homes because they can't afford the repairs. And so there will be funds available now for repairs, expanding that program to help folks stay in their homes. And then I do think there is some sort of educational piece. Um, A program we just stood up is really geared towards renters. We're partnering with Campbell for eviction assistance and prevention. So if you're a low-income renter, and you're at risk of eviction, you can get free legal representation now. I think there could be a similar program where, you know, quite frankly, some folks may want to sell their homes. They may want to cash in on their generational wealth and be like, now's the time, market's hot, but they may not understand what is a fair offer and Mm -hmm. how do I negotiate? And I think there is probably a program we could stand up um, to help provide those resources too. Mm -hmm. And there's just also a lot of people, I think, yeah, it's really important also to protect the people who say, wow, this is a lot of money and you're just going to hand it to me. But then they realize that they've accepted an offer that prices them out of anywhere they want to live. Yeah, I mean, that's a challenge right now, right? Mm -hmm. Like you could sell your house for a lot, but then everything else is selling for a lot. So then where are you going to go? You go into one of the more suburban surrounding counties and now we've increased sprawl. Now we've increased traffic. Now we've put people further away from their jobs and, and things that they need. And so all of these issues talking about land use planning and transit and housing, it all really ties together. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to ask you about that. Um, yes. Why um, did you all remove the ban on short term rentals? A couple things. Um, When I was running for election in 2019, I met with so many folks who under the old restrictive rules, they were struggling to pay their own mortgages, struggling to pay for daycare. There are folks that depend upon short-term rental income to keep a roof over their own heads, to pay for medical expenses, to pay for school expenses. Um, And so I'm a very, let's come up from from a place of yes person. Let's start from a- How long of- Kind of were were those people doing short term rentals? Sort of, I don't know. I just yeah, it's a that, com- that just is yeah. It it's a complex history because there were no short term rental rules in Raleigh. Then the prior city council functionally banned short term rentals, and then when we got elected, before the ban really could take effect, we suspended the rules until we could come up with new rules. And so what we have now is a new set of rules that does let folks rent a whole house, rent rooms in their houses. You have to have a permit, you have to be registered. And then we requested periodic updates from staff so we can try to monitor how many registered short-term rentals do we have? What effect is it having on the housing stock? Do we think it's affecting affordability and access? Um, And what we've seen so far is unlike other cities that are more tourist destinations, Mm -hmm. it's not really affecting us in that way. And if it is, then I would be a a proponent of scaling it back. But until the data says it's a problem, I would not want to I don't want to restrict people's abilities to make an income on their own property. Okay. Yeah, I was also curious how that played into um, the ADUs and sort of kind of protecting, um, making sure that that was used as housing stock and not just uh, short-term rentals where people that aren't 
members yeah. of the community are. So the ADU piece is kind of just one part of short-term rentals. Yeah. Because now we've legalized ADUs citywide, and I haven't looked at the data recently, but before we allowed them citywide, they were allowed under a very restrictive process before where you basically had to go to all of your surrounding neighbors and ask them if you could build an ADU. Then you had to basically ask for a rezoning from city council, which really increased the cost. I mean, you had to hire a lawyer. You would have mm-hmm. had to have you know, gone through this very long process. Now you can build them by right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I'm interested in is now that you can build them by right, there's been a lot more permits applied for them. So mm-hmm. once we get them out onto the ground, I'm interested to see how are they being used and what else can we do to make them be used in the way we want them to be used. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know some people will use an ADU as a short-term rental to try to make income, but my hope is that a lot of people will offer them up for long-term rentals to make some income. And when I was at a law school and moved back to Raleigh, I was trying to find a garage apartment or a basement apartment that I could rent. All my friends Mm -hmm. were moving to DC and other places and renting those types of apartments. And I couldn't afford any of the new apartment buildings downtown. And I looked everywhere for something like my friends were renting and I couldn't find any. And I didn't know at the time, but I know now it's because those are considered ADUs and they weren't legal before. Mm -hmm. So now they are legal. And I think there's a lot of ways that we can, moving forward, try to incentivize their construction and their placement on the market as a more affordable rental. Um, right now, I know the city is gathering plans from architects that they can make available on the city website. So if you want to build an ADU, that's one step you can sort of cut out of the process. But there are a lot of municipalities, towns and cities out west that offer like forgivable loans or low interest loans or grants for you to build an ADU on your property if you make it a rental affordable at a low AMI. Mm-hmm. And so I'd be very interested in moving something like that forward. Um, a lot of candidates say they're for affordable housing. Um, how does your plan differentiate from the other candidates? Mine, I would like to push for denser housing along BRT corridors. Um, I want that ready to go immediately. And with that, I want developers to put in a plan where say along the BRT corridor, we have two stories of just business and everything above that would be housing. So I kind of, I want to get rid of the height restrictions that go into place. Uh, when developers are able to build these larger units, especially along the corridor, I'd like to ask them to reserve, say, maybe five to 10% of their units for affordable, I mean, for, for affordable housing. Um, I'm not going to mandate it because that would be illegal and holding them hostage. Um, but I would like to ask them to. I'd like to make it more lucrative for the developer to do so, so they're not losing money. Um, if I can create greater density in the city, then that's the possibility of more affordable housing. And that's what I want to do. I want to get as many people that want to stay in the city to be able to live here. And the way I see that is through deregulation and allowing private homeowners to do what they, you know, to give up their units or say X amount of units in their apartment for that affordable housing. Um, do you think it would be beneficial for the city of Raleigh to mandate that developers do that to, in order to create the house, more housing stock? No. Uh, like I said before, that was that's illegal. So I did meet with several different groups. Um, that is I mean, it being illegal doesn't, I mean, when you create the laws, it doesn't right. matter I mean, that much. Raleigh can't create those laws because that's collective bargaining. Unfortunately, that's the same issue that the firefighters face. I mean, we can't meet up with them and say, hey, you have to do this. That's still private land. I mean, that's still private ownership. That's 
But it's up to the city to approve any development that occurs. Right, you can approve it, but that's still, hold, that's again, that's collective bargaining. That's holding a developer hostage. That's the city saying, hey, you can't do, build what you want on your land. I mean, that's pretty restrictive. And that's not something that I want to be a part of. I want that opportunity to be there by choice. And if, say we have, you know. What kind of incentive would you propose in order to make that happen? Well, definitely a, a tax relief or at least a uh, some sort of financial relief towards the builder uh, saying, hey, you know, we can cut the time needed to approve your land um, or we can try and expedite it. So create a, you know, an expedite. That's the word I'm trying to think of, uh, an expedited process. Hey, you're going to build an apartment complex that's, you know, this large. Cool. Can you please set aside this much and we will try and push it through just as fast, uh, you know, that way. Or say, hey, we will waive, you know, your fees or we'll waive as much as possible. So create the incentive right there um, to get the housing built because that's not just helping, uh, you know, the, the folks in need, but that's also, I mean, that are really in need for the affordable housing, that's also putting stock into the folks that are going to pay full price. So if I can get those that those housing units out faster and cheaper for the developers, so that, I mean, that's less red tape for the city government to do, then that'd be a pretty good incentive. And that's not the full, you know, full incentive that we can offer. Mm -hmm. um, I'd certainly like to work with lawyers and developers, get their input as like, hey, what works best for you? What can we legally do? that will not tie us up and will also not tie you up to get more housing units out there. That makes sense. It just seems like that so far the um, the, the, the method of asking nicely hasn't seemed to do very much when developers are able to um, turn around and just say, oh, we might have built these as affordable housing, but with the rates increasing and mm -hmm. whatever, any agreements they might have yeah. are they're, able they're to just right now, pull right sure. out from under them. Well, I mean, let's look at what happened in the past uh, two elections. So you had, so before this council came on board, we had a really restrictive council on board. We're just getting, say, an accessory dwelling unit or an Airbnb was impossible. I mean, they had theirs, but it, you know, the rules were for thee, but not for me. That was the saying that we all had towards the council before this one. And I really applaud this council's effort for getting how, you know, all that stuff going and housing going. However, you know, the pandemic hit that shut everything down. The we're on the verge of a recession and inflation is going through the roof right after that. So all those incentives that were there before, they're still there, but now that it's so expensive just to get housing built right now, and we're five years behind nationally, not just Raleigh, nationally, we're five years behind on, on building housing. It's going to take a lot to get that affordable housing in place without ratcheting up taxes to get it there. Now. I'm a huge fan of letting the market correct itself, or at least in this case, having inflation come down a little bit. That way we can bring developers back. It's not gonna be a fast fix. Um, it's gonna be a little bit slow, but once you know the economy fixes itself, we can certainly bring a lot of those developers back in and say, hey, this offer still stands, but let us sweeten it for you a little bit. We need you to start building as quickly as possible to get a lot of these you know, lower income families in there but also regular income families so we can get more revenue generated towards the city. Um, 
What is the goal of getting rid of neighborhood conservation overlay districts? Uh, I would like to allow a little bit more, I mean, a lot more expansion of the, of housing density. And there are some overlay districts that are preventing that from happening for, for example, infill. Um, there are a few houses that have become derelict or there are lots that are not being used right now. And because of these overlay districts, there is a lot of red tape to cut through. And, you know, that's a multifamily house like a fourplex or, you know, a three-story, four-story building that just can't exist until the red tape is cut through. Um, so a lot of candidates say they're for affordable housing. Um, does How does your idea and vision for the city differ from um, their platforms? Well, I know good stories are made out of conflict, but... <laughs> I think we're all a little at sea about how we can get a lot more housing built fairly quickly. And it needs to be mixed incomes, but focused on um, people at the median level and, and lower. Um, I want the city to set some very sharp goals. And the people currently sitting on council have not done that. They, they've put some numbers, but that's not the same. Uh, with a goal, you try to get everybody involved. Let's say you want to get 20% of all the housing that's built everywhere to be affordable to somebody who's making, you know, 50 or 60% of the median income. And those are, those are our teachers, our firefighters, um, people who work uh, to support institutions of all kinds. So if, if you want to house those people, then you, you have to say something like, we want 20% of all the housing that you build everywhere to be affordable to people at that level. People who are a lot uh, less privileged, are, let's say they are 30% of our median income or lower, they are definitely going to need deep subsidies and, and probably social services or human services to go along so that life is, is um, tolerable. But I think we could have a whole lot more affordability if we say that that's what we're looking at and then we provide the staff that shows how you can do it. To date, that's been based on funds that are available for special programs so through the state, some, some city money. Uh, but until the lending institutions get involved and figure out what the right formulas are, we're not going to make the progress that we need to. So if you don't set a strong goal, then nobody has to try to stretch and reach it. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for permanently affordable to, let's say, 40, 50, 60 percent of AMI. And I think our people are creative enough to figure that out so that it becomes the expectation. Many years ago, we established a policy that uh, for projects that the city supported that there would be a certain percentage of minority and business and women-owned business participation. And at first, the private industry said, we can't do that. We don't have to, and so we're not doing it because the city can't force them to. But then we set the goal and we kept checking, you know. Somebody got five, six, eight percent. We say, oh, that's good. That's good. We'd pay attention to them. 
we eventually started getting 12 and 15 percent participation. So you have to be you set a strong goal, have be very persistent in expecting everybody in every circumstance to help. Um, so that's is that going to solve all our problem? I don't know, but it's a, certainly a start. Um, why did you vote to dissolve um, citizen advisory committees? Yeah. So the way we send and receive information has changed substantially from the 1970s when that system was, was put into place. Uh, I'm a lawyer in my full-time job, and I joke sometimes, I don't mean any disrespect by this, but I think we're one of the only professions that still uses a fax machine, which was also created around the same time. Uh, I think we need to decentralize. Uh, citywide surveys showed that very few people in Raleigh knew what a CAC was. Even fewer ever attended a CAC meeting. That cannot be the only city-sanctioned form of engagement. Um, quite frankly, attendees typically skewed older and not representative of the community. I think we need to do a better job of reaching more people to reach out to a more diverse representative body. Uh, In-person meetings are important. I think they'll still play a role. Groups called CACs still meet. Um, the city maintains a neighborhood registry program where neighborhoods can register and get access to city resources and community centers for their meetings. But I think we have to also decentralize and reach out in more places. And so some of the stuff we've done since I've been on council is we included renters for the first time ever in required notice for city decisions. I think 50% of our city rents and they had not been included before. Um, we funded an office of community engagement that's going to help embed community engagement into all of our departments. We funded a community engagement bus to literally go into disengaged communities and meet people where they are. So that's the approach I want to take. I think for a long time, community engagement in Raleigh was a noun. It should be a verb, mm -hmm. an action that we're doing, not a place you have to go. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I was just curious um, kind of what, yeah, your plan and how and how you would like to see them get reinstituted because it happened under the, it happened under the name of reform, but there's not reform if there's not a new, that, yeah, if there wasn't a new plan that got in, put into place. So I don't think, there were prior reform efforts before I got on council. I think there were two efforts prior, maybe 17, 15, 2015, 2017, that failed. Because mm -hmm. um, quite frankly, most of the CAC system sort of rejected any reform efforts. And so I think mm -hmm. when, when I got elected in 19 and the idea of coming up with a new system was presented to me, I looked through all the data. I saw how very few people were engaging in the CAC process, how mm -hmm. there were prior reform efforts. And I thought it was best to, to just start with a new system. And I don't think it's going to be a direct apples to apples replacement. Like I mm -hmm. said, the way we send and receive information is so different now. I think in-person meetings like CACs are one piece of the pie, but I don't think they're the whole pie. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a way that um, you all could include citizens in the process similar to the power that um, CACs held? Well, I think one big function of the CACs was voting on rezoning requests. And when we did shift away from the CACs, we put into our city code required two neighborhood meetings for rezoning requests, which were not part of the code before. And we actually got an update from our community engagement department a couple weeks ago to council meeting. There have been more neighborhood meetings for rezoning cases this term since this new plan was put into place than there were under the CAC system. So that piece still exists. 
Um, there's also opportunities to engage with the city at our planning commission. They take public comment, public hearing um, at our council meetings, through our boards and commissions. But I'm really excited to see what the new Office of Community Engagement will come up with. Like I said, I think in-person neighborhood meetings are important. They're going to still play a role. But I'm really excited to see what we can do to actually not put the burden on the residents to have to show up mm-hmm. somewhere to engage, but how we can bring the city to them. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard for people to make that time. Yeah, I mean, really, folks that are able to find time to go to a meeting in the evening during the week are probably folks that are retired or, you know, aren't working two shifts, don't have little kids, things like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. What's your position on the dissolution of the citizen advisory councils? Um, I was really disappointed in that. Um, Before I deployed... I would always go to each and every uh, Southeast CAC meeting because that was my finger on the pulse. Like there was rezoning efforts that were being done that I didn't even know about that didn't even make the news until they hit council. Mm -hmm. And when that went away, um, I had to rely on, say, ABC 11 or WRL or, you know, council post meeting while I was employed just to get any information. However, if I was to submit an email to the CAC, it was like, hey, what are, is the upcoming agenda? What's going to go on? Well, because I couldn't be there, then I'd, I'd at least get something back and I'd be in the know. I don't like how this council did that. I want to bring it back and so do several other candidates because community outreach and having the community involved in everything, that is huge for me. I want that to come back. I want CACs to exist, but the caveat on that that being, I want a stricter covenant in place because the largest gripe, or I'd say concern that a lot of people had about the CACs was that it was the same people in charge of each CAC that was giving it a lot of negative feedback, especially from this council. Uh, Councilman Knight, he had an issue with CAC, CAC's, you know, voting on what's going to happen. I mean, mind you, it's the council that has the final say, but that was a way for the community to say, hey, no, we don't want this, or we do want this, and I would love for that to come back. Or, I mean, I would love for, you know, the CAC to come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it would be, I think there's a way to do it right, and I think it'd be complicated to get uh, maybe full participation. Right. But, um, yeah, because that... The way it was at least portrayed to me by um, Councilman Melton is that it was a very disproportionate group of people that had nothing better to do. Right. Which, I mean, that's how HOAs are. Yeah. They exactly. suck. Um, <laughs> you telling me. Yeah. And I just, yeah, it, it would be a lot of some sort of, and it would be a lot of involvement for a um, some sort of quorum of a neighborhood to be able to participate right. in that process. Uh, the Midtown... Uh, CAC, they're still in existence. I mean, of their own accord right now because they're not being funded by the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They Facebook still have a lot of people coming there. The Southeast CAC that I went to at most, I think I saw 30 people. Uh, you know, that would vary from event to event depending on where it was held. Some A lot of people had to walk uh, to where, the, where it was for mine because uh, it was either at Barwell or it was off a of pool road. Uh, the one that was off a of pool road, a lot more people showed up, but it was a smaller space, unfortunately. Um, I like that I could have a police officer there telling me, hey, here's what's going on in your neighborhood. Um, here's what we're seeing. Here, Take these precautions. Uh, I liked how Raleigh traffic would show up and say, hey, um, we're seeing a lot of traffic in this area. Uh, we're thinking about putting, say, a speed bump in this area. You know, 
here's this. But as far as making sure that, you know, the same people that kind of, you know, keep doing this, you can put in a measure in place by saying, hey, term limits. Mm-hmm. Can, and uh, so it same- sounds like it's a bit, it was a really good way for maybe not the council, but certainly the city departments to interface yeah, with absolutely the it was. residents. And you can have the same thing as like the, you know, the NC governor does where you can serve two terms, but you cannot serve that third term in a row. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the CACs, you know, you can definitely have that in, say, your your covenant or whatever you want to call it, your, mm-hmm. your rules. Yeah. And bring that back and, you know, get new people in there, some fresh blood. Say, hey, two terms, you can do whatever position you want, but after those two terms, you got to hang it up for, you know, one or one or two terms. Let mm-hmm. somebody else new come in there. Yeah. Uh, how would you like to see the dissolution of CACs be handled? Or, or like, um, how do you want to go forward from what has happened? Yeah. Um, well, the city has hired a new person, and we have a new uh, commission working on community engagement. It's going to take them a little while to work through their organizational issues. I'm hoping that we don't wait until all that comes along. Um, Communication is a part is a huge part of that, and the city's communication systems, in my not so humble opinion, do not serve citizens as well as they can. So that, and citizens can be demanding. I get that, uh, but I think we could start right away. They could be doing it now. I'd like to see more to upgrade our communication systems. That way, when you then are talking with community groups about being um, advisory to a council or to help a city move forward, then you've at least got the tools in place so they can talk to each other. It's, it's going to have to be a combination of both uh, virtual and in-person. Our city has grown a lot, so mapping out how we could engage whole new groups of people is going to be pretty fundamental to it. We have a neighborhoods, a housing and neighborhoods um, department, and they look after um, things that are going on. They look after housing, but I think we could do a lot more on the neighborhood communication side. So it needs uplift. It needs an upfit and uh, needs, needs some new realms of investment. Like, you know, a bodega on every corner has, I mean, that's like getting all your groceries from the C stores here, right? Yeah. I don't know if they're gotten a whole lot cheaper since I've been here, but that was a good way to blow your, you know, your they're not great. declining balance card, right? And mm-hmm. you don't get a, you don't get a large selection. And that's, that's why saying that having gas stations at every corner, um, you know, they're zoning these commercial residential things to where you could run it out of your house now. But what we need is access to good, cheap, you know, healthy food uh, in areas that are pretty vast food deserts, like Southeast Raleigh is a, is a pretty huge. Uh, and if we think that a bodegas are going to take up for the lack of like actual, you know, decent food, then people obviously haven't spent a lot of time in. in Where do you um, would you incentivize more um, spaces like the um, like the urban gardens in Raleigh? 
Oh, yeah, but I wanted to make sure that they were available closer to the people that need it. Like right now, most of the urban gardens in, in Raleigh are in pretty, not exclusively, but a lot of them are pretty bourgeois areas. But um, we need to encourage it in, in places that are, are, that are less mm-hmm. so. Um, and also, I think the city should incentivize... Um, collectively run businesses uh and and i think that comes into food as they're trying to they've been trying to start a food co-op in southeast raleigh i think the city should definitely get on board with that uh i think um how does the city do that how does the city do that if i were the city what i what i would do is i would present a a case to where here's money we're going to provide a space and land we will put money into it uh, and then do what we can to get, you know, to benefit local farmers and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, we've got the, we've got the initial capital investment as the city. We, we run it. The people that are working there, once the capital the expense is paid off, once we've paid off the building, the, uh, the stuff, then we turn it over to the worker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I think that solves two problems at once. You get mm-hmm. people, you know, the, the work fed and you get jobs it, and you get people fed and you get jobs and, you know, and the city backs off. Like once we've got our money out of it, then we give it to we give it to the employees to run it as as they should, and they should be running it all along. But I mean, they they know what they're doing. They they literally work there. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, like uh, collectively owned businesses. If you're going to do businesses, is is the way to go. Like. You know, because when it comes down to it, if you look at the very base level, socialism is worker control of the means of production, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the value that things create value because the workers create them. Right. Like, yeah. Like the investor class isn't out there producing anything. They're just they're just taking the profits that somebody else did. Maybe they had an initial money investment. But when it comes down to all value and all things are created by the people that do the work to get it there. So right now we live in a society that is tilted much more towards the investor class and not to the worker working class. And uh, and, you know, you can't maintain a society. How will city council support uni gardens and other le- and other efforts to um, alleviate food deserts uh, throughout Raleigh? Because in your on your website you um, you mentioned community gardens and sort mm-hmm. of uh, farmer stands as ways to reach people that have traditionally been um, have a, had a, have had a harder time accessing stuff the the food and um, produce that they provide. Yeah, so this is something I've really tried to lead on since I've been on council. I want to reduce car dependency and I want to put goods and services closer to people. And I also want to make it easier for folks to open businesses that provide goods and services, especially in areas that are lacking, that are food deserts or that don't have the amenities that folks need. And for the community garden piece, we made it easier to have a community garden. We allowed on-site produce sales now. It wasn't allowed before in the city. I don't know why, but now you can sell your produce on-site. Um, and one thing I've been looking at is how can we make it easier for small businesses to exist in neighborhoods and sort of break down these walls that were created with the exclusionary zoning to separate the city by uses with jobs over here, retail over here, housing over here. Um, and so breaking down those walls and we've sort of looked at it incrementally. So yes, we did the allowing produce sales at community gardens. We piloted, um, farmers markets at city parks. 
Um, then we move forward on what's called accessory commercial units. So kind of like an accessory dwelling unit where you can use a portion of your property, either connected or separate for a rental. We are allowing folks to use a portion of their property, either separate or connected to do certain home-based businesses. Uh, we also eliminated the old restrictions on live work. Before, if you wanted to do live work, you had to hire a lawyer, you had to go to the board of adjustments, you had to get a special use permit. Now it's a simple permit. What's live work? Live work is if you want to teach karate out of your garage, if you want to teach piano out of your house or violin, if you want to cut hair, if you want to tailor clothes, it's all personal services. You used to have to not have customers mm-hmm. and you would have to go through a special use permit which required you to hire a lawyer to go to the board of adjustments to notice your neighbors and it basically was suppressing gig economy i mean quite mm-hmm. frankly um and so we have put rules in place now where you can do that out of your house mm-hmm. um, and my hope is is that if you want to get your hair cut and your neighbor cuts hair you'll walk down the street and get your hair cut and that's one less car trip you have to make one less vehicle mile traveled the piece that we are still struggling with is the complete grocery store aspect. Mm-hmm. Because under North Carolina law, we cannot regulate what a store sells. And so the piece that is causing folks heartburn is if we allow all retail in all places, people say, well, someone's going to open a vape shop. Someone's going to open a gun shop. And I, quite frankly, believe that to be a little bit fear-mongering. I don't think the most lucrative businesses in the city are suddenly going to become vape shops and gun shops, and they're going to open in every neighborhood across the city. But I think until we can get some assistance from the General Assembly on being able to say, we want to legalize groceries, food in neighborhoods, that that's going to continue to be a challenge. But for me, that is a second-term priority. we got accessory commercial units, live work, mm-hmm. on-site what are gardens. Some of those... Um for the the working spaces of accessory dwelling units. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that was for um, specific types of jobs and Home-based stuff. Home-based business, yes. Yeah, what are some of those? I was kind of already giving some of them oh, out. Oh, okay. So, I just wasn't um, sure if that was different list. than live work. So it's, okay. kind of, it's the same thing, but okay. now it's allowing, not only we made live work easier, but we're allowing live work in an accessory commercial unit. Okay. So it's basically like you could build your own structure on your property, which could be an ADU, accessory mm-hmm. dwelling unit, if you let someone live in it. But if you're going to run your business out of it, it's called an accessory commercial unit, an ACU. So that would be the dance teachers, the hairdressers, the, the, I can't even, you you build up, you bake a cake, Mm -hmm. guitar teachers, um, painters, things like that. Um, do you have any plans to address the food desert in East Raleigh? That one, um, I would certainly like to get a private fund started to build a grocery store on, on that land. I mean, I live in Southeast Raleigh. I've lived there uh, since 2016. That's where I built my house is in Southeast Raleigh because that was the cheapest place to live. I was, mm-hmm. It's the only place I could afford. I mean, I, I've been working for the state for the longest time. And when I first started working, I was making $31,000 an hour, uh, a year. And after state taxes, that's like 27% they take out. That's all I could afford. There are spots that are undeveloped. Um, Unfortunately, there's a lot of places that are now restricted to develop grocery stores um, because the council said, hey, you cannot develop on this type of land anymore. Uh, But also, we need space to build those grocery stores because a lot of places where folks want it, there's already houses there. What are we going to, I mean, I, this is my honest question to people about this. What are you going to do? Tear down those houses to build a grocery store? Those, I mean, that's where people live. That's where lower income folks live. We have to be really smart about where we place these things. Uh, the 
best way I see that we can handle that is, you know, you know public transit, you know, get make it easier for people to ride, say, the bus to the grocery store, and I'm glad that it's free, and I want it to stay free so I can get people from those bus stops to, say, grocery store, but... You know, where are we going to put these grocery stores? If somebody has land available, hey, I will, you know, start a GoFundMe for you. We can do community events, whatever else to help you finance a grocery store, you know, privately. Or even if you want to get a chain in there, like say another food line, you know, on that side of town. I will be behind anybody that wants to do that 100%. I think it's a good start. Um, how do you plan to address um, the food desert in East Raleigh? I'll have to be reminded about where the legislation is, but at one time it's been um, illegal to sell produce from your own garden. <laughs> so that's been um, rolled back. It has been rolled back. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm encouraged to hear that because people growing their own food and then sharing it is a part of it, but then growing your own food and being able to sell some of it is also part of it. And having an exchange place, the small small markets where you can do that comfortably and inexpensively may be part of that. When we talk about food deserts, it's not just one thing. It's, it's availability of... Um, of grocery stores that have a wide range of, of choices. Um, but it's also the, the lack of places to eat well, to buy food that is really healthy for us, has slipped away, not just in Southeast Raleigh, but really all over. And you start looking at fast food diets, and the things that people can pick up quickly, you're not necessarily looking at nutrition. I add to that the fact that they've got now, you go to a grocery store, a big grocery store, and it's full of everything in addition to food. It's got lawn chairs, it's got, you know, cameras, it's got TVs, it's got a thousand other things. So to me, it sort of dilutes the the food choice experience. I don't know if the Raleigh can solve this, but we sure can can support people who want to help in it. And so there are some simple things like, you know, having cooking classes uh, pretty routinely at our parks and um, having food, good, healthy food uh, available at events, um, inc- having, um, uh, I want to say, well, having vendors that offer food trucks is what I'm trying to say, uh, that offer healthy food. So there are some things we can do. 